You're listening to Protecting People, a podcast focused on the human side of cybersecurity. Each episode, you'll hear real-world insights and learn about the latest trends in social engineering, malware, threat protection, cloud security, and more, all from a distinctly people-centric viewpoint. Because in today's threat landscape, protection starts with people. Let's get into the show. Welcome to the Protecting People podcast. My name is Brian Reed. I'm the Senior Director of Cybersecurity Strategy here at Proofpoint and your host. September marks the start of National Insider Threat Month, and there's a lot to bring awareness uh, around this topic. So recent data shows that 69% of organizations have experienced an attempted or successful threat or corruption of data in the last 12 months, and that number is only going to go up. The frequency and cost of these threats over the past two years has increased by 44%, according to the 2022 Cost of Insider Threat Report from Ponymon Institute. Here with me today to dive deeper into insider risks, insider threats, and all things insider is my wonderful friend, my former colleague, and now my current colleague, Mr. Jonathan Kerr. Jonathan, how are you doing? Hey, Brian, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm very well, thank you, and thank you for inviting me to be uh, on this podcast. It is wonderful to have you. I am super excited to finally have an opportunity to have you join this podcast. As many people might know, uh, Jonathan and I both shared a past experience in industry analyst world. We were both at Gartner together for a period of time and covered uh, what we originally called employee monitoring, right, Jonathan? That's right. Um, And I think what happened is that we quickly saw that um, there was more to this. And so, um, again, we it grew and evolved when we started looking at the analytics side as well. We grew it into you know, the insider coverage area. Yeah, and certainly a lot of this was rooted in, in topic areas that are probably familiar to a lot of our listeners. Uh, user behavior analytics, user and entity behavior analytics, those sorts of things. I, I know one of the topics we struggled with in our shared past was a lot of organizations looked at doing monitoring of employees versus surveillance of employees. And, and there's a difference in those two words, monitoring versus surveillance, right? Mm, I think so. And I think it's essentially to the depth in which you go. I think monitoring implies, again, that it's looking at activities and perhaps, you know, just taking note for, you know, accounting and auditing purposes, you know, things like logins, logouts, failed password attempts, password changes, that kind of, kind of, you know, personal but not terribly intrusive stuff. But I think when we start talking about surveillance and we started getting into the world of recording keystrokes, we start getting into the world of um, taking screenshots of somebody's screen or even recording the video of somebody's screen. And at that point, obviously, that is surveillance. You are getting a very in-depth and intrusive look at um, you know what's, uh, what somebody's doing, which can, of course, not include not only uh, work activities, but personal activities as well. Yeah, and, and there's certainly good reasons to uh, go down this road of monitoring uh, versus surveillance activities. And, and we're going to get into uh, the differences between insider risk and insider threat uh, here in a moment. But before we do that, as you were describing uh, the difference between monitoring and surveillance, one of the things I've been thinking about a lot recently, and, and this just spurred the, the thought in my mind, was a lot of workplaces, as we start talking about return to site and return to work and hybrid work, whatever that might mean, a lot of organizations are starting to get very concerned about things like workplace productivity monitoring and worker monitoring and those sorts of scenarios where 
you might have IT asking security, you know, what are you already gathering? What are you doing here? Is that how should end user organizations tackle that? If if I'm a CISO or I'm a security leader, and my CIO asks me, "Hey, we want to go about doing some of this workplace productivity monitoring. Can you help us from the security team? Is it is it super helpful when we talk about insider risks and insider threats? And and are you seeing some of that out there too? There's a lot to unpack there. There is a lot to unpack there. Um, but hey, we've got to leave it. So the I think the first piece is around the issue of security monitoring and the tools and capabilities to do that, which are about protecting the organization. And the other side, which is workplace performance management. And clearly, of course, ultimately, that's protecting uh, the organization from a different risk, which is, you know, people not doing their job. It becomes problematic when you conflate the two. And I think the problem is that in terms of, if you like, workplace psychology, most organizations now have a a hefty value, you know, a great appreciation for the importance of highly skilled knowledge workers. And I think that the highly skilled knowledge workers, and there's a lot of data, I think, to show this from, you know, from the UK's Law Society, from similar organizations in the USA, says essentially that knowledge workers will flourish and grow, and you will be able to attract the highest value workers if they feel that they are trusted to do a professional job. And I think the problem with performance management, and especially when conflated with security monitoring, is it's very tempting to measure input as a as a form of you know seeing how someone's doing. And let's take this podcast as an example. I am sitting here, I am talking um, in front of my computer. Uh, I'm not touching the keyboard. I'm not moving the mouse. So any performance monitoring system would see that I've been idle for 20 minutes, but hopefully you folks here feel that I'm doing some good. And I think that's where the problem comes. We cannot necessarily measure somebody's thinking time. We cannot measure when somebody's having key conversations with stakeholders, with customers. And so the idea of sort of merging security monitoring and say performance management, I think becomes problematic. And I know there are vendors that say, hey, don't worry, we can do this. But I think that when you actually start to conflate those two, you risk damaging something very precious, but very, very fragile, which is the culture of the organization. And we as security managers, and certainly CISOs, are very aware that there's a fine line between being an effective CISO protecting the organization against risk and becoming, you know, being seen as the the net cop. And that's not something that any of us really want to go back to. Um, you know, we're trying to move ahead from that. So I think that's the, you know, that's the first piece. My counsel would certainly be in, you know, to um, obviously vendors, but um, certainly to uh, CISOs who are listening, is try and keep those two separate. Try not to allow that kind of scope creep. Now, the other thing you mentioned there, Brian, was insider risks and insider threats. I've got to own up to this one. I talk with a lot of CISOs in my former role, and I noticed when I talked to them about threats and insider threats, they got fairly gung-ho, to be quite sincere. And they got uh, very excited on the idea of, hey, here's some stuff we can you know, go after. And hey, we know about threat management because we defend. We have a SOC who defends against attackers. And our threat management approach is basically contain, isolate, eradicate. And you know, so essentially, that works very well for external attackers. It's not so good if your attacker or your threat is inside. 
and I used to be fairly jovial about this and say, hey, well, you know, if you try and squash all your insiders, you'll end up with a very bad mess on the carpet to clean up. But in actual fact, the problem is that the nuances of behavior and the way we need to approach the human problem of insiders doing things wrong is actually very different. First of all, although attribution is not necessarily a rabbit hole we follow down to its end, we do need to understand what the intent of the activity is. So, for example, the difference between somebody who has just come back from COVID or just come back from, you know, uh, I've got a friend who just came back from Black Hat with a bad case of the flu. And, you know, these people, they have a bad day and perhaps they do the wrong thing. They type the wrong thing. That's very different from somebody who is deliberately for their own gain trying to, you know, extract data or commit acts of embezzlement and so on. And of course, there's a third category as well, which is um, someone entirely innocent may have had their credentials stolen. And so it's important for us to understand the intent between those three. So I came up with this idea and I said, hey, why don't we call this insider risk management? Because it's not, you know, in traditional threat management, it's not about detect, deter, destroy. It's about measuring the problem and then making a conscious, explicit decision to transfer, treat, or tolerate. Thank you again for that perspective. I think it's super important to, to tie all that together. I know the, the workplace performance management question is one I, I see crop up here and there, and, and I think your, your guidance there of let's not conflate that with insider risk uh, and or insider threat is an important one. I, I mean, kind of digging into the insider risk, insider threat piece, Jonathan, I know one of the ways I typically describe the difference in the two, and I know you wrote research on this, so I'll, I'll let you dig even even further into maybe a little bit of the backstory and some of the conversations. But I always looked at insider risk as a bit of a superset of threat. Certainly insider threat management and or monitoring uh, is a component there, but there's a lot of other components that might drive insider risk. And I loved your example of how we handle external risks differently than insider risks. So I, I'll kind of throw that over to you. Is that a fair assessment, that, that, that superset idea? I think it is. And I think you, um, I think you posit it very well. Insider threat management is going to be for the very small percentage of bad actors within the organization. People who are stealing credentials, people who are committing acts of embezzlement, people who are actually you know, exfiltrating data, and there are, unfortunately, there are people that do that. And uh, certainly when I started talking to CISOs in pharmaceutical, for example, in semiconductor research, you know, it was very clear that these organizations with tremendous intellectual capital do have this problem and they have it you know, in quite in abundance. But if we actually look at then comparing that to insider risk management, well, we care for insider threat, we care about that small percentage who are bad actors. For insider risk, we actually care about the entire organization because anybody can have a bad day. Anybody can fall victim to a, a coercion attack where they're persuaded to do something by you know an, another person, which isn't necessarily in the organization's best interests. Anybody can have their credentials stolen, unfortunately. And so I think Insider risk management, we're not just looking at a tiny percentage of the organization, we're looking across the whole organization. Yeah, I, I think that's an important distinction there that you mentioned too, around the, the scope and view that insider risk is across all of those. 
and, and I love how you teed that up. Anybody can have a bad day. Anybody can have their credentials compromised. Uh, we do see some common behavior patterns that indicate insider threat. Uh, and, and obviously, you look at things like the Ponymon Cost of Insider Threat Report, which I know you've looked at uh, for numerous years that that's been published by Ponymon Institute, and you know, along with Proofpoint and previously Observe It and IBM and others. Uh, but there's some common behavior patterns that indicate there, there's an insider threat going on or there's an insider risk going on, aren't there? I think so. And it's an interesting one because when I talk about this, I see that there are a certain subset of our audience, the very technical oriented CISOs who say, actually, I'm really uncomfortable with this people thing. But unfortunately, you know, people are a part of what we need to be looking at in terms of our risk profile. So indulge me for a while, if you will. There are different types of threat actors, and many of the scenarios that I'm going to describe will be well known to our audience and, of course, to you as well, Brian. So the person who is consistently hoarding information, the person who is unexpectedly taking you know, a lot of sick time or personal time, um, especially perhaps after a bad performance review or some negative feedback. And certainly, uh, you know, I've seen these, um, you know, I've seen these scenarios in my, in, throughout my working life. The person who, interestingly enough, has the cleanest laptop you've ever seen. Everybody has some personal data. I mean, I, my, my Proofpoint laptop is already accruing, um, you know, some breadcrumbs from my, uh, um, you know, the, the odd bit of personal browsing or personal email I do, and that's inevitable. But if you find a personal device, a, you know, or a, an issued laptop, for example, that is squeaky clean, there's no sign of any, uh, of any personal data or any kind of data anywhere. That's actually an interesting indicator. Somebody is taking steps to make sure that they're scrubbing their, yeah, scrubbing their fingerprints off. That's something to look at. And I think the um, when you go along with that, signs that somebody is not respecting rules like use of personal cloud services. And I'm sure, you know, like everybody, you know, I have a personal G drive, uh, I have a personal Dropbox, and uh, I have a personal OneDrive with my um, Office 365 account I have at home. So I've got these cloud services. But it's not appropriate for me to use those for, um, you know, certainly for Proofpoint work, for example. It's surprising. And I used to do this uh, when I was talking about this. And indeed, when I wrote a paper with uh, you, Brian, on how to build incident response scenarios for insider threats, the scenarios and sort of the the types of people that we would see, again, would be, as I say, across these different scenarios. And again, all sorts of human behavior are there and all sorts, of, all sorts of human activity needs to be considered. So we need to think about, you know, what happens when somebody has an unhappy affair. And by the way, as far as I can tell, most workplaces' romances end unhappily, apart from the very, you know, the small fraction that don't. But of course, when that happens, then you've got some tremendous amounts of negative sentiment bubbling in the workplace. And so you see people trying to hack into other people's accounts and all the rest of it. And so there's all of these kind of things. But of course, the most common one, and you know, especially unfortunate with the unfortunate economic times are in, when people are feeling you know, afraid, 
for their position, when they're worrying about their income, those are tremendous, especially if you then have personal financial issues, for example, a divorce, for example, family legal or medical bills, that puts an awful lot of pressure on the individual. Now, what I don't know, and I don't think we ever actually figured out, is what's the difference in personality between someone who says, okay, I've got all this stuff going on, but I'm able to balance my professional responsibilities with, if you like, my you know, my need to you know, find a way to earn more money. And somebody goes, oh, hey, why don't I you know, just grab some customer details and see if I can sell those? And which, of course, is, you know, is wrong. And at that point, you've gone beyond the pale. I think one of the things actually, coming back to what we talked about earlier, a common thread in all of the taxonomies of discovered and, in fact, arrested uh, insider incidents was the offending individuals said, well, I don't really feel the organization cares about me, so why should I care about the organization? And the most common way that was expressed is a perception that direct supervisory management was callous or uncaring in some way. Which goes back to this comment we were saying where the culture that we as CISOs help create can actually reduce or increase our insider risk problem. Yeah, it's amazing as as you were walking through that, how much culture plays into this and and human psychology and sociology. And a lot of times these are soft skills well, they are all soft skills, but but there are a lot of times things that aren't top of mind when you're an internal security organization or you're running a SOC or you're thinking about, you know, hey, I've got a really good answer for the external threat problem. Let me just flip that around and try to solve my insider threat problem and my insider risk exposure this way. It, it doesn't work because you're not factoring in all of those those human driven people centric motivations there and it's um it was interesting i know that it, we'll we'll put a link into the show notes of the research that you and i wrote i know you mentioned it jonathan on how to build incident response scenarios around insider threats and, and we did a really interesting presentation as i recall a few years ago that went over time uh when we were on stage and had some people mad at us but uh a lot of really interesting personas that we dug into and you highlighted on a couple of those people that have money problems workplace romance gone bad uh, people that might be um, you know, really good at uh, you know, managing up in the organization, but not really good at managing down, those, those sorts of people. Uh, and, and there were some pretty humorous ones in there, but it's, it's thinking about those, those people-driven use cases, those people-centric use cases that a lot of people need to think about instead of looking at a tool and looking at a technology and building rules around you know, what's built into the platform. It's really thinking about the people and and building your program that way. I think it is, yes. And I think that, as I say, that can be, you know, if you come up from a, a very technical role, it can be, you know, somewhat bewildering and frightening to think about this. But I think the other side of this, and I mentioned, and there's a couple of things as well. When we as product designers, when we're thinking about the product, um, we need to think about the kind of activities that we are trying to detect. I don't believe that most insider risk problems are technical. I don't believe people by and large say, hey, I'll bring in a copy of Kali Linux or any other hacking tool and I'll, I'll have a go at the office and see what happens. 
I think that insider problems are characterized by people misusing or abusing the privileges they already have to do their job. And you think about you know, obvious examples like um, you know an invoice administrator who creates duplicate invoices and uh, spurious uh, suppliers. And think about the payroll manager who does much the same thing. But also think about the um, the city trader. And there have been plenty of articles in the press about city traders who get into a bad position and they end up, you know, they borrow money from one account to try and pay off the other account. And they end up trading in sort of wildly outside of the organization's risk limits. And uh, before you know where they are, before they know where they are, they suddenly found that they're in deep water. And of course, at that point, customer harm has occurred organizational reputational harm has occurred. And I think one of the things that's exciting, and I know we've talked about this a lot in sort of various meetings, is the earlier we can detect these types of high-risk, potentially harmful behaviors. And this is where the analytics, the UEBA, as it used to be called, becomes an important part of this, because we can filter out all of these seemingly innocuous things that actually there is a picture of high-risk behavior. Wouldn't it be great if we could intervene, be early? We buy ourselves choices. For example, you know, when um, Investment Bank, when I was talking through this with them, they said, well, wouldn't it be great if we could identify these problems early on? We could just offer these people a low interest loan because it would be far cheaper for the bank to do that and have to undo all that customer harm, have to undo the reputational harm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I, you've kind of led a little bit to the next question. I know we've we've talked a little bit about the different personas who might be at risk of insider threat. We, we've certainly talked about different motivations of you know, malicious users, people who might have credential theft or compromised accounts and, and certainly careless folks. But I think we've done a good job of admiring the problem in a lot of ways. But what's the value in, in an organization actually going through and implementing an insider threat program? Is, is there, you know, we, we talked at the beginning, this is different than external threats, but what are some of the benefits and the values for implementing an ITM program? I think one of the things is that it actually gives any code of conduct, any acceptable uses policy, whatever it uh, whatever it's called, it gives it some you know, it gives it some enforcement powers, and I think that's important. You know, that no policy really comes to life without the ability to detect and enforce compliance with that policy. Uh, I think that the other side of this, though, is the the cost. As I say, given the current macroeconomic environment, everybody is thinking about cutting costs. And the real benefit to an organization, if you have an effective insider program, you can detect these issues early. You may detect them early enough so that you can say, hey, this is why it's not a good idea to store your work documents on your personal Gmail drive. And you know, you can do a 10-minute bite-sized awareness training and uh, you can reinforce it that way. You can detect if somebody is vulnerable to you know, phishing attacks. So you can say, hey, this is why you really need to be a little more vigilant in the emails that you're receiving and just not you know, click on every link and see what happens. Again, as you start looking into specific sectors and use cases, again, we talked there about the uh, traders getting themselves into a, a bad scenario. But of course, it's true for any uh, organization. So it can also be true for, um, you know, if you're working in a supply chain, uh, it can be true for any, well, I'll just say anywhere. And even in, I recall I had a conversation with a food manufacturer 
And uh, they said they were worried about, you know, insider problems. And I said, well, I wasn't aware that there were many secrets left in the world of potatoes. And they said, well, actually, you know, we're a traded company. If we, you know, we're on the we're on the stock market. If our data is released, then we're actually in a situation where, you know, we could get whacked by the SEC for irresponsibly releasing data and so perhaps, you know, manipulating our stock prices. And that's clearly not a good thing. Um, but I say the overwhelming, if you like, the real reason to look at this in seriousness is because you are controlling the costs to your organization. The earlier you can detect aberrant behavior, the earlier you can correct it. And the minimal costs, the consequences, if you like, of, as a customer harm, reputational harm, and so on, are you know, smaller the earlier in the kind of the incident life cycle you can get it. And I think that's actually leads on to you know another another point. This is not a this is not a solo sport. CISOs, the bad news for you is you're going to have to run a team sport because HR are important in this as well. Potentially finance are important in this as well. And there'll be other stakeholders. And in fact, probably, uh, you know, talking to the line management groups out there, they're probably an important stakeholder in this as well. And you're going to need to set up and run really effective stakeholder committees, if you like, program sponsors to make sure that you're inside a program is delivering to the organization what it needs. Yeah, and that's such an important point, Jonathan, because, I mean, we talked about the benefits, the why you would deploy this, you know, program out there. But, you know, the actual how you implement a program, how do you implement a that people-centric approach to insider threats? To paraphrase a little bit of what you just mentioned, you talked about identifying different personas, you know, identifying different risk areas. Do I have users that are just acting carelessly? Do I have people that might be you know, misusing sharing credentials or have compromised accounts? Or do I have those truly malicious folks out there? And then the other thing that you mentioned was going back to the business itself and, and asking them, you know, what are your recent issues? Do you have business financial org issues? Um, and one of the things I know I used to always talk about was I, I used to call it the unholy trinity. And, and I'll apologize in advance while I say this, but HR, legal, and privacy. You've got to have those those three involved. That that trinity of of those users and those constituents internally to have any sort of hope of implementing a successful program. Right. It's absolutely true. Um, and um, again, the last thing you want is for any of that uh, unholy trinity to decide they want to run their own particular program because then you. Again, you have all sorts of organizational risk issues and, again, culture issues as well. I think that depending on the size of the organization, I think we, we, we've covered the stakeholders. And I think the, as the organization grows, you know, the stakeholder list may well grow as well. But I think, as you say, the core group is that group Brian just described. But let's look at the people who are actually doing the, um, the work. There are a number of different areas. And I think the first one is the detection of the high-risk activity. This is highly sensitive because, of course, it can be anybody in the organization. And frankly, it's, as I said, you, you know, say, it's the some of the dirtiest laundry that the organization has got. So it's highly sensitive. You may not want to put this into the hands of your SOC, who, by the way, are not necessarily trained in the nuances of response that we tried to talk about uh, so far. They are trained, as I said, to identify, contain, and eradicate a threat. 
that's not necessarily the approach that you want to take for an insider problem, especially not if the insider, as sometimes happens, is a senior person in the organization. The approach we see of organizations of a certain maturity and size is they normally have an ancillary group, an insider management group working in parallel with the SOC in the same way as, you know, SOCs don't usually do forensic investigations or other types of investigations. And so you have an insider threat management group who, again, will run this in, in parallel. There's another thing as well, which tends to come up. People talk about the responsible disclosure programs, the whistleblowing programs um, that or ethic monitoring uh, that many organizations run, healthcare organizations run, uh, certainly financial institutions run, and uh, you know many of the high tech organizations I work with, they tend to have a an ethics hotline where you can uh, you know report concerns. And I remember uh, having a discussion with somebody who said, "Well, you know, how closely do you think that should be tied to your insider threat program?" And my answer is very simple: not at all. It should be extremely separate. There should be no concern from the people who are choosing to report something which you know may impact them personally, could potentially impact their careers and livelihoods. You do not want that information leaking in any way. And so my suggestion is that, you know, at the very most, um, any ethics reporting unit um, perhaps can make a um, you know can can make a report into the insider risk, but there should be some very clear blue water between those two functions. That's that's hugely it, that's such an important point there that um, it, it, the separation of of duties and the separations of responsibilities there. There's just too much of an opportunity for those scenarios where you've got a whistleblower, you've got somebody who's trying to you know uphold corporate responsibility and and you know preserve. You know, potentially the reputation of the organization getting, you know, for lack of a better term, railroaded by your insider threat program. Yeah, I think so. And I think the other point I'd also make, that's we talked about the detection and we talked about the separation between um, other units. Intervention. Um, and I prefer the word intervention because, as I say, it doesn't necessarily, in, you know, you're not necessarily frog marching someone down to HR for disciplinary. Um, sometimes you are asking them, to undertake a 10-minute bite-sized training unit that will just help the memorability that what they were doing is not a great idea. And again, the earlier we can make these interventions, the less impactful, the less disruptive they tend to be for the organization's purpose as a whole. So who should do these interventions? I don't think security professionals are the right people to do it. I think they should focus on detection, on providing a very clear case file, if you will, to line management or to HR. If it's a serious problem, if it's gone to the point where actually, you know, you know a, a formal intervention is required. I don't think that as security people, we should be, you know, going at field's desk and saying, hey, we saw what you're doing. Not a good idea. We need to be focusing on what we do well, detecting the problem, understanding the problem, and then passing a very well-defined evidenced recommendation to the people whose responsibility is supervision and organizational risk control. Yeah, to sum that up, it, it, I mean, what you're basically saying is the decision management lies elsewhere outside of security, right? It's not security's job to be judge, jury, and potentially executioner uh, to take it to the furthest extreme. <laughs> and yeah, I'm, 
in a lot of ways, we are we're not the ultimate decision maker as security professionals. HR tend to be the ones who carry the you know carry the bag for organizational risk. Line managers are responsible for the performance and behavior of their employees up to a certain point. And we know, and and this is obviously we talked about that. So why are we trying to interfere with organizational functions that already exist? I think that again, this is part of the challenge for the CISO is that we are probably going to be orchestrating this function, but we're not the we're not the soloist. We're not the solo artist. We are there to provide, as say, information and insight for prime decision makers to act upon. Yeah, and and great advice there. And I, I want to wrap up and ask you because I know this could probably be a question we could go 15, 20 minutes on. But if you're an organization and you've started out uh, down this insider threat management journey, or maybe you've you've got that fledgling program that started and you want to improve upon what you're doing around insider threat or start thinking about insider risk, what advice, tips, takeaways, Jonathan, do you have for for those folks out there that are looking to either get started or improve upon what they've already got? Well, I think it's it can be a bit daunting. I mean, one of the problems tends to be establishing that there is a business need for this, that you're not just doing it because, you know, there's a there's a brand new set of shiny kits you want to buy, for example. And I think that, um, not that I'm anything against people buying brand new shiny kit, of course, but I think that the the business need, you can go about this in two ways. If you have the time and the resources and the support from um, above, you can do the, you know, use some kind of UEBA, some kind of analytics tool to measure and sort of say, look, we are, these these cases are happening right now. We don't have the tool set to do the effective timely intervention. And so this is the business case. However, there's usually, there's usually a reason why this is uppermost in a CISO's mind. Something has happened. Every organization is different. So there's something. I can't tell you what that will be. But every organization will have something. And it tends to be broadly data infiltration, data destruction, uh, credential theft, yeah, employee coercion, all the, you know, there's some fairly broad categories. So the way I would suggest you start is you build a set of workflows and you think about well, what's the entry point. Okay, we have discovered that some data exfiltration is happening. How that's, that's a separate question. We're just talking about the workflow. So we've discovered this. Okay, what do we do when we discover this? Well, if it's minor, okay, the workflow is, okay, we'll you know send somebody on a 10 minute training course, say, you know, you really shouldn't be exfiltrating or, you know, storing data in your personal G drive because it looks fairly innocuous. If there's a repeated pattern, Perhaps the next phase is we send a report to the line manager saying, hey, do you know that Jonathan Kerr keeps storing data in his personal G drive and he's had the training? You might want to have a word. If it keeps happening, if there's evidence then of intent and perhaps harmful intent, clearly then you're starting to go to that stage in the workflow. You say, actually, there's something here we need to formally escalate to HR for their intervention. And you can build these workflows up. And I've suggested, you know, I've thrown a few, if you like, entry scenarios in, for example, invoice fraud, for example, payroll fraud. And as I said, you know, each organization will have different drivers, will have different pressures. An investment bank will be very different from a pharmaceutical research company, will be very different from a manufacturing organization. But 
the common point is everybody has these if you like, has these problems. And what we're trying to do here, I think, is we're trying to say it's okay to talk about this and it's okay to recognize it. One of the things that interests me most about this and the thing I encourage you know, everybody is try not to sweep this under the carpet, trying to say, hey, of course, we trust our employees and we never need to think about this. Everybody has this problem. And the more we can talk about and discuss it openly and say, this is just a risk management problem, then we release the sort of stigma of, hey, we're spying our employees. No, we're not. We're protecting the organization against risk. Release sort of, oh, you know, we're creating this culture where, you know, if you don't keep moving your mouse, then oh, you're going to get, you're not going to get any bonus at the end of the year. No, that's not what it's about. It's about understanding what you're doing with the data that you're entrusted with, the information about customers and about the intellectual property of the organization that you're entrusted with. And this does hit some really, really, really interesting cases. For example, I remember I had a conversation with a studio and they were doing work for one of the big uh, production companies you know, like a Warner or a Marvel and one of these things. And they said, we're really, really worried, really worried that with everybody working at home, somebody is going to take a, I don't know, the latest Iron Man pictures and they're going to use them in their kids show and tell. And they said, if that happens, we are done because we will never be trusted again by the, the, big the big movie houses. And there are 20 other companies waiting to take our place. And so each organization has different, they, different drivers, different types of information they consider important. And I say, what we need to do is build these sets of workflows of entry scenarios. So we can say, when this happens... What are we going to do? When it looks serious, how do we escalate this? And then you come to the question, well, how do we detect this? How do we make sure we respond to this appropriately? How do we make sure we respond to this in a timely way? And I think that's the, um, I think that's the uh, if you like, the approach to say that this is not about we don't trust our employees. It's about we recognize everybody is human. Some people have pressures that they can no longer resist for better or for worse. Some people have you know, situations that are intolerable to them and they make some regrettable choices. Some people have a bad day. Um, I had a conversation with somebody who uh, was working in a um, heavy industry and they said, well, you know, my administrator came back from being ill and they've you know, been with the company five years, never put a foot wrong. And hey, guess what? They came back with from a case of the flu. They saw an email saying, hi, this is the CFO. Can you send all of our W-2 tax records to our new payroll processor? And she did. And guess what? It was somebody bad in Romania. No, I, 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 think, you're, uh, I think your point there on building organization-specific use cases uh, is a great piece of advice for not just people starting out, but people that want to improve or take a fresh look at their ITM journey. So Jonathan Kerr, Cybersecurity Advisor for Proofpoint, thank you so much for all of your time, all of your insight, and all of your perspectives on insider risk and insider threat management. Thank you very much. Yeah, and this is uh, Brian Reed signing off until next time on the Protecting People podcast. Thanks, everyone. You've been listening to Protecting People, a podcast by Proofpoint. Never miss an episode by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast player. Thank you so much for listening.